Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, the 1970 murder of Vista worker Nancy Morgan in rural North Carolina. And it didn't take too long for Ed Walker to figure out they were leaning on him. They said they had a witness who could place him at the murder scene, almost doing the murder. And, uh, he, just, he couldn't believe it. He was, here's this middle-class guy with a family and a job being accused of a 14-year-old murder up in the wilds of Western North Carolina. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I appreciate you listening, as always. I am so pleased to have as my guest today Mark Pinsky. He has been a freelance writer and journalist for over 50 years with a long, long resume. He began his career in the mid-1960s at the Duke University Chronicle, He has worked for or contributed his writing to numerous newspapers, publications, and wire services over the years, including The Nation, The Associated Press, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, The Orlando Sentinel, USA Today, The Columbia Journalism Review, and The Harvard Divinity Bulletin. His specialties are religion, politics, and popular culture, but he has covered a ton of true crime in his life, including the capital murder cases of Ted Bundy and Green Beret Captain Jeffrey McDonald. His books include the best-selling The Gospel According to the Simpsons, The Spiritual Life of the World's Most Animated Family, and an upcoming true crime book called Drifting into Darkness, Murder, Madness, Suicide, in a death under suspicious circumstances. He is here today to talk about a book that will soon be available in paperback. It is called Met Her on the Mountain, The Murder of Nancy Morgan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. So when did you first hear about Nancy Morgan's murder and, and how did it affect you? 
at the time. I first heard about the murder the week it happened in June of 1970. Uh, I was still at Duke University. I'd recently graduated. I was up in the office of the Duke Chronicle, where I spent much of the previous five years. Uh, the campus was empty because it was in the wake of um, uh, the Kent State killings and Jackson State killings, so the students had been sent home. So I was in the editor's office, and I was reading the afternoon newspaper, the Durham Sun, and I opened it to an article saying the body of a young anti-poverty worker who had been missing uh, had been found, and she had been murdered. And she was about my age, I think maybe a year older, uh, very politically engaged, as I was during my student years. And I took her death personally, and as a front, it was like the old wobbly saying, an injury to one is an injury to all. And I felt like one of my comrades, colleagues, had been murdered, and it, it offended me. So I remember cutting the article out of the paper, uh, pulling a fresh manila file and putting the article in the file. I didn't know how I would use it or how it would affect my life, but I had a strong feeling that it would, and it did. So Madison County, North Carolina, where this murder happened, had a pretty notorious history, right? It's often referred to as Bloody Madison. Yes. At that time, still in the, in the 1970s, Madison County was an isolated, impoverished, and corrupt corner of the Southern Appalachian Mountains. Madison County is right on the edge of the border with Tennessee. It's a beautiful place, incredibly beautiful, with uh, a great history of music and lovely water that flows through these mountains and rivers. And... Um, but it was under the sway of two brothers, Zeno and E.Y. Ponder, who basically took over the county politically in the years immediately following the uh, World War II. They mobilized the returned veterans, and they took over the county, which had been in Republican hands pretty much for the previous hundred years since the Civil War. The county was divided during the Civil War between supporters of the Confederacy and slavery and supporters of the Union. And it was that's how it got its name, Bloody Madison. There was a, a massacre that took place of uh, young men and civilians during the, uh, the Civil War. And ever since then, Madison was known as Bloody Madison. This uh, Civil War massacre is known more commonly as the Shelton Laurel Massacre, right? Yes. In, in this internecine period of Madison County history, uh, it was really neighbor against neighbor. And there was an episode in one of the towns in Marshall where people suspected of being unionists came in and uh, broke in while the, most of the men were away in uniform to seize salt, which they needed to salt their meat for the winter. And uh, the Confederates who controlled the town wouldn't let salt go up to Shelton Laurel, which was a union stronghold. And so while the, most of the men were away uh, in Madison County, the Confederate men were away, a group of Unionists rode into Marshall, tore up the town, and uh, took as much salt as they thought they needed. When the Confederates came back to town and saw what had happened, they were infuriated. And so they took several columns of uh, Confederate soldiers uh, up along the river, up into Shelton Laurel. On their way, the Shelton Laurel people were hiding in the woods along the road and sniping at the Confederate soldiers as they headed toward Shelton Laurel. And it made them angrier and angrier because they couldn't catch them. When they got to Shelton Laurel, the people they were looking for, they couldn't find. 
So instead, they took hold of old men and young boys and took them as essentially hostages. They thought they were going to be tried at some military court. But about halfway down from Shelton Laurel back to Marshall, one of the Confederate officers pulled all 13 of these old and very young men aside and had them shot. Oh. And that still sticks with residents of the county. Oh, it does. It's still vivid in, in the minds of people. There's some interesting uh, short story and novelists who frequently return to the, the Shelton Laurel massacre as a motif in their short stories or in their, or in their novels. And people still remember who's descended from what side and whose people were responsible and whose people were killed. Wow. So your book focuses on the murder of a young woman named Nancy Morgan. Would you mind talking about her, who she was, and what brought her to Madison County? She was a gifted young woman, really, uh, uh, I say a child of her times, which would be the late 60s. Uh, her father was a career military man. The family moved around. And um, in the late 60s, they were not overtly political um, at all, but the times, like it did for many of us, really transformed her. The assassinations of, uh, of the two Kennedys, of Martin Luther King's death, and Nancy was slowly politicized into developing a very strong social conscience. And so she went to two schools. She finally graduated from Southern Illinois University um, near St. Louis, where her father was then uh, stationed. And she wasn't quite sure what she wanted to do with the rest of her life. And one idea she had was to help people in a formal way, at least until she went to graduate school in nursing, which had been her ambition. And so she heard about this program called VISTA, which stood for Volunteers in Service to America. Uh, it was a one-year commitment in the U.S. to impoverished communities in the Appalachian Mountains, uh, migrant workers, Indian re reservations, various things. And so she signed up for that. And by the luck of the draw, she was in a group of about eight young people, young men and women, who were sent up to, uh, to Madison County to help uh, people with issues like nutrition, recreation, medicine, fitness, and to some degree, uh, poverty as well. And she was very extroverted, very friendly, and that was a bit off-putting for Madison County locals. Yes, I mean, in, in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, there's a real long tradition of suspicion of outsiders, almost xenophobia, not without reason, because over the last 150 years, uh, missionaries, both religious and secular, have come to try to fix the people in the mountains. And they often came with a, with a feeling of superiority that was really off-putting to the local people. Other people came to basically uh, learn about the musical tradition of Madison County. They're very famous for their banjo pickers and their fiddlers. But in the 1930s and later, uh, people from the North came down and essentially collected their music, but really stole their music, re-recorded it, didn't pay them anything, and didn't give them credit. So there was a, a, a lingering suspicion of outsiders to come in. And so when Nancy came in, she was a very you know, friendly person, outgoing person, and pretty much everybody loved her, even the suspicious people from Madison County, she soon won them over and won their trust by the work that she was doing, mostly with uh, young people. 
and and not just her, but her colleagues as well, uh, Vistas. Again, as you've said, they were kind of children of their times. I, I mean, this was in the throes of the hippie movement. And although they weren't hippies by 1970 San Francisco standards, to the people of the Appalachias, they were hippies. Right. And I think there's a lot of um, cultural and social and sexual repression up in the mountains. And I think what happened is that the local people who had these caricatured ideas of what 60s young people were doing, particularly college kids, I think projected those fears and fantasies onto these new people and really without reason. They were very, we would call them very straight people. They were college students, college graduates, uh, one married couple, very straight-laced in their personal lives. Didn't really drink very much. They made a pact that they would not uh, use any drugs while they were up there. Um, It was a fairly chaste group. They weren't really um, engaging with each other in a sexual way. But at the same time, the local people kept reading and hearing about these wild ways of these young people, and I think projected some of those uh, fantasies onto these people really without reason. People in the area were concerned for her well-being quite a bit of the time, because again, she was very outgoing, and according to her peers and friends, she didn't act cautiously. She didn't seem to keep her guard up, especially around some of the young local men. Right. She was very open about her life. Um, she would sit with, uh, you know, at a club or at a music thing. She would sit next to men. On one occasion, she sat on, on a local man's lap, and people were sort of scandalized by that. Um, in, in the beginning, she had one roommate, another single woman, And then midway through her time in Vista, her roommate left, and she was a young, attractive, single woman living alone up in that area. And people felt she was really vulnerable. And I think some people may have mistaken her openness for availability, which was a mistake that uh, there were several incidents involving that kind of misunderstanding. So would you walk us through the evening of her disappearance? Sunday, June 14th, 1970. What do we know about what she did, who she saw? Yes. Um, Nancy had been accepted into a graduate program in, in nursing up in New York. She was very excited about that. They sent her her cape and her cap, and she tried it on for her friends and neighbors. She was really excited because her time in Vista was just about over. She was about to leave on a, a trip, not to leave Vista, but to... Uh, visit some friends around the country and her family in suburban Washington, D.C., looking for some uh, work over the summer that might tide her over before she began school. And so she ran into another Vista, a man whose name, real name I didn't use, um, who said, why don't you come over for dinner before you leave? And she said, fine. It was a Sunday evening, and it was at the other end of the county from Shelton Laurel, which is where she was living. So she went there. um, She cooked you know, times were different then. Uh, She was the guest, but she cooked. And they talked about their future. They talked about their experiences in the previous year. Very amiable conversation lasting late into the night, actually till about three in the morning. And at that point, she was going to go back home. And because of the way the house was up in a sort of difficult part of the the road, 
um, her host said, let me take your car. I'll turn it around and put it in the right direction for you to get down the mountain, which he said he did. And she left about three in the morning and was never seen alive again. At first, it took about two days for her co-workers to realize that something wasn't right. Um, one of her superiors wanted her car and he couldn't find her car, which was a government issued car. And he thought, well, maybe she went to the airport to go on her trip and left the car there. And he went there and he couldn't find the car. And so concern began to grow. He called his superior in, in, in Atlanta at that time and said, we may have a problem here. We can't seem to find Nancy. And so the superior jumped on a plane and flew to North Carolina and they began searching both her co-workers in Vista and many of her friends, local friends, were concerned as well. And they fanned out really throughout the county in the first few days, really night and day, they were out looking for her. They thought perhaps she might have driven her car off the edge of one of these mountain roads and nobody would have known about it because it's, uh, again, it's a kind of an isolated area. The, the landscape is very forbidding in some places. But at first they, they couldn't find her. So, yeah, the search was conducted, but it wasn't one of the searchers that discovered her car. It was a, a boy, a, a young man, who, who stumbled on it while delivering uh, cans, bottles, I believe, um, to his parents' store. Yeah, he was th taking bottles from his family store to another store to um, turn them in for money. He stopped to relieve himself on a side road, a logging road, um, not far from the Appalachian Trail uh, in a town called Hot Springs, North Carolina. And he went on this old logging road, at that time known as a kind of, you know, lover's lane occasionally. And he saw this car, this gray Plymouth government-issued car, which had bumped up against some saplings in a kind of a dappled meadow. And he went over and he looked in the back seat and he saw the body of Nancy Morgan. She was naked and hogtied in the back seat, leaning on the back seat. And he ran right away and called the sheriff and said, something really bad has happened here. You need to get out here. And at that point, because of where the car was found, which was in a national forest, Pisgah National Forest, it had been previously privately owned coincidentally by the sheriff himself who had donated or sold it to the federal government. And at that time, uh, federal uh, rangers, basically caretakers of uh, the national forest had law enforcement authority, but they really weren't used to doing crimes. And so within short order, people from the sheriff's office, the people from, from the mountains, and then the FBI arrived and then the state Bureau of investigation arrived. And for the first afternoon, it was really not clear who had primary jurisdiction over the murder. Yeah. So amidst this confusion, news still traveled fast. People were monitoring police scanners. Large groups of gawkers came out to stare at the crime scene. Yes. Yes. It was during the day and it's a sunshiny day. And I've seen photographs of, uh, of the crime scene and people standing around and gawking and looking. And it was fairly confusing, apparently, from what people have told me. So her body is delivered to the local morgue. A renowned North Carolina medical examiner named Dr. Paige Hudson arrives to 
personally examine her body. Right. They took her body to the nearest major hospital, which was in Asheville. And uh, Dr. Hudson had his headquarters in Chapel Hill, and he realized how important this case was uh, just from all the publicity about this federal worker being missing and it being Madison County with all that carried with it. So he jumped in his car and he drove to um, Asheville to the hospital, to the morgue there to conduct the autopsy rather than letting um, a local person do it. He was, uh, it didn't take long for him to figure out what had happened. She had been hogtied. And as the knot was, the knots were tied, as she struggled, she strangled. And um, the autopsy was interesting in itself because as Dr. Hudson told me, he's passed now, but he said he was very upset at the FBI people who arrived late and they seemed kind of lackadaisical in their, in their observation of the, uh, of the autopsy. So death was caused by strangulation. That was his conclusion. And she'd also been sexually assaulted, right? Correct. Um, in the meantime, the Vistas were panicked and heartbroken over their friend and co-worker's murder. And the program was shut down in Madison County shortly after her death. Yes, it, it, it was a, a kind of mutual decision. Most of the, the surviving six uh, Vistas did not feel safe, and they felt they needed to leave. By the same token, conservative local people felt that this had brought shame and disgrace again on Madison County, and that this was all the responsibility of outsiders, and the quicker they could shut down the program and get them out of the county, the better, which is what they did. And Zeno Ponder, his brother E.Y. Ponder, and others in the area, uh, including local newspapers, they were suggesting that Nancy had brought this on herself, blaming her for what they claimed were her loose and immoral ways. That's the way it, it was perceived. Now, I should say that at this point, this was a short interregnum of the Ponder's power. They were briefly out of power. The sheriff and the prosecutor were both Republicans. Zeno and EY were Democrats, but they were so well plugged in. This is a small county. I mean, not geographically, but in terms of population, there are only about 17,000 people there. And so, frankly, most everybody knew everybody or, or who understood what was going on. So EY, I think, sensed what had really happened. Uh, uh, Eno, uh, Zeno, excuse me, who was chairman of the county Democratic Party, also had a sense of what had happened. But they didn't talk about it until many years later when I interviewed both of them. We will be back after a brief break. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. 
But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. You talk about mountain justice in your book. What is mountain justice? It it's the implications it has something to do with uh with vigilante justice and oddly poetic justice that people got what they deserved if they did wrong and that means taking the law into their own hands or settling grudges um the judicial system was not very highly regarded at that time so in the meantime the morgan family was crushed of course by Nancy's death. And you write that her father, Earl Morgan, was this stereotypical, stoic, unemotional military man. And he was a, a father who was very interested in learning what happened to his daughter. So he began his own informal investigation into Nancy's murder, right? Yes, in, in his career, he was uh, part of the Judge Advocate General's Corps. He was, uh, he was an attorney, and he was used to investigations and prosecutions. And so my sense from speaking with people who spoke with him at the time, he's also passed, uh, was that he couldn't really turn off his professional skills, particularly when it involved his own daughter. And so he basically mobilized himself and the people who he knew to assist the investigation, either directly, which he tried to do, and indirectly, which he did do. He had been at law school with, at that time, U.S. Senator Russell Long from Louisiana, which is where the, where the Morgan family had come from. And uh, Russell Long was a very powerful Democratic U.S. Senator, and he contacted Senator Long's office, who, uh, who he knew from law school, and said, we need some help here. Uh, at first, the colonel thought that it was it might have been a clan killing of some sort. Turned out not to be. But in engaging Senator Long, Senator Long then reached out to J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, and said, I'm interested in this case. Please follow it for me. And that was all it took. 
for Hoover to um, bring the FBI back into the case. Shortly after the murder, they had withdrawn when it didn't look like they could solve it right away. Now, J. Edgar Hoover ordered everybody, you know, all in to assist in the investigation of uh, Nancy's killing. So the, the person who surfaced as the number one suspect was the man you mentioned earlier, the man whose name you withheld. You call him Ed Walker in your book. He was the last person to admit seeing her alive. It's natural, right, for investigators to have a special interest in the last person who was known to have been in contact with the victim. Right. That's that's uh, law enforcement 101. You look for the last person to have seen that person alive or and or the nearest family member. Now, in this case, he was an outsider. He admitted that he had had dinner with her. He was a young single man. She was a young single woman. So the notion of sexual tension always pops into the investigators minds as well as the locals for that matter. And so investigators focused on him. But the investigation was so lackadaisical that they didn't really have enough information to pursue it. I mean, they they brought all the vistas in for questioning. They hooked this young man up to a lie detector, a polygraph, and uh, no, nothing untoward came in their results. And so basically the case then just sort of petered out for years. Right. And it wouldn't be until 1984 that a man named Johnny Waldrup, who was serving time in the Madison County Jail, would come forward with what he claimed was new information in the case. Uh, yes, it was, it was not coincidentally around election time when Sheriff E.Y. Ponder was up for re-election. And he had, in several earlier campaigns since the murder, had promised that if re-elected, he would solve the Morgan murder case, and he had not done so. And the power of the Ponder machine was beginning to wane a bit. And he said again, if reelected, he would solve this case. He was reelected. And then he came forward with Johnny Waldrop's story that implicated um, Ed Walker. But he was, I mean, he was, he was the definition of a, of, of a near-do-well. He was always in trouble, um, always in and out of jail. His neighbors thought he stole everything from six packs of beer to chicken and geese. Um, no one had anything really good to say about him. And, and Sheriff Ponder kept order, more or less, in Madison County through an extensive network of uh, snitches. And uh, Johnny Waldrop was one of his chief snitches. Actually, he had put Waldrop in the same cell adjacent when, when Ed Walker w- was elected, hoping to, uh, uh, arrested, hoping to you know, get him to implicate himself, which, of course, never happened. Another interesting fact about Sheriff Ponder, he was friends with the police chief of Hot Springs, a nearby town, a man named Leroy Johnson. Johnson would deliver votes for the Ponder political machine, and in return, the Ponders would look the other way when Leroy Johnson's son, Richard Johnson, would get into various scrapes with the law. Uh, he was he was equally a, a near-do-well as Johnny Waldrop. These were probably the two most um, disliked, feared, and hated young men at different ends of, uh, of Madison County. What, what kind of trouble did Richard Johnson get into? 
Um, he beat up kids in school. He set fires. Uh, he stole things. He ran liquor. Pretty much whatever it was, he did. And then, most terrifically, he was in and out of trouble for domestic violence. So again, this is years after the murder. Sheriff Ponder paid a visit to Ed Walker at his home in Florida. And you were able to interview Walker about this, and he was able to describe to you the scene right when Ponder showed up at his door. Right, and I didn't realize that un- until later that what happened to Ed Walker happened to at least one and I think two other people who Sh- Sheriff Ponder thought were, were also involved but weren't. He showed up with, uh, with some local law enforcement in, uh, on the, in the west coast of Florida where Ed Walker was then living and working, had a family, wife, daughter, good job in a car parts place, um, had saved some money, had built, um, um, lived, lived by the ocean, uh, had a boat, and his life was going really well. His wife, as it happened, was a probationary employee of the local police department. And so one night while he was babysitting his daughter, then 12 or 13, and her, her girlfriend, Sheriff Ponder and uh, a local police officer and another Madison County officer knocked on his door and said, uh, we're from Madison County. We want to talk to you about Nancy Morgan. And what, what Ed Walker told me was he thought that Sheriff Ponder had solved the crime and was coming as a courtesy to tell Ed who the murderer was or who they suspected the murderer was. And it didn't take too long for Ed Walker to figure out they were leaning on him. They said they had a witness who could place him at the murder scene, almost doing the murder. And uh, he just, he couldn't believe it. He was here's this middle class guy with a family and a job, being accused of a 14 year old murder, up in the wilds of Western North Carolina. So Walker was arrested. It was difficult for him. You state in your book that it pretty much wiped him out financially, uh, eventually, and he was placed in a, a low security cell. You write with unlocked doors. And with him there happened to be Richard Johnson, who was awaiting trial for a really despicable crime. Yes. Um, and uh, Sheriff Ponder tried to get uh, Richard Johnson to be a jailhouse snitch against Ed Walker as well. Nothing came of it because I don't think there was anything to come of it. Um, but yes, Sheriff Ponder is an interesting character. He was, he's also passed. He was a small man. He never carried a gun. He didn't wear a uniform. He basically kept order through his snitches and the power to arrest people, but more for his ability to let people out and not charge people. Uh, Madison County had no resident coroner. So it was the sheriff's decision in those days to classify a death as natural or unnatural, murder, suicide, or accidental. And that's a lot of power to make that decision all by yourself. Because if someone's charged with murder, if they're poor, defending a case could basically wipe them out financially. So the sheriff used snitches and the ability to let people off the hook for things that they were charged with to maintain his political power. And obviously, Ponder made a lot of enemies over the years. 
and one of his biggest adversaries was a man named Joe Huff. Yes, yes. Um, most of, of E.Y. Ponder's enemies were Republicans, because as I mentioned, ever since the Civil War, the county was almost evenly divided between Republicans and, and Democrats. And and once Eno, once Zeno Ponder got in with his brother E.Y., he ran patronage as if he was Stalin, essentially. If you weren't a Democrat, you couldn't get a job. And in some cases, you, you couldn't get federal anti-poverty benefits either. However, there was a faction of the Democratic Party in a college town called Mars Hill, uh, which, although Democrats, did not really like the Ponders at all. They were suspicious of them. And Joe Huff was a, was a young attorney, and he bumped heads with Zeno Ponder from the time they were college students and never gave up. They, they, there was once even a fist fight on the, on, the, uh, on the steps of the county courthouse between the two of them. Who won is still a matter of, uh, of dispute in, uh, in, in Madison County. But when I talked to Zeno, he, he hated Joe Huff. And he once described Joe Huff to me. He says, you know, Joe Huff is what we call a revolving son of a bitch. He said, any way you look at him, he's a son of a bitch. <laughs> and, 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 Joe, and Joe Huff was just as, just as angry, you know, uh, and he hated Zeno that much. Now, I will have to say this, you know, Joe was a very interesting character, a Democrat, but he was a kind of old school Democrat. He flew, a, he flew the Confederate flag in his front yard. He would occasionally, not with malice, he would occasionally use the N-word. Um, but he, he really hated uh, Zeno and, and EY. And he, on a, a couple of times, he was able to split the vote and push them out of power briefly. But he hated him with all his heart. And um, Ed Walker had a lot of bad luck, but he had one piece of good luck when the, he had no lawyer up there because he thought they were going to let him out on bail. He thought he was going to return voluntarily from Florida. They were going to set bail and he'd go home the next day, which, but uh, EY double-crossed him on that. But Ed Walker had a lucky day when the judge appointed Joe Huff to be his attorney. And that, I think, really, in many ways saved Ed Walker's life. Right, right, yeah. So the trial commences, and the key witness, of course, for the prosecution was Johnny Waldrop. What was his story, his new story? Uh, what did he say he saw the last night Nancy was seen alive? He said he was living nearby with his mother, really across a yard. He said that he he sneaked over there and looked in the window and said there was a, a party bordering on a sex orgy going on at Ed Walker's house and that Nancy Morgan was tied up and she was struggling. And he was so afraid of, uh, of Ed Walker, he didn't do anything. And when he came back later, he looked in the window and Nancy appeared to be dead and Ed Walker saw him and forced him for some way to load Nancy's body into her car and to follow him to another part of the county where they were going to dump the body. Now, he didn't say that Ed Walker hit him. He didn't say that Ed Walker had a gun or a knife. But somehow the story was through his force of personality. And then again, there was this. They were in two cars. 
Um, Ed Walker was in one car. We don't know which one. And Johnny Waldrop was driving the other car. Even if Johnny was afraid of Ed Walker, once they got out on the road, why didn't he just drive off in the other direction? You know, go to the police, go to the, go to the sheriff. The story had so many holes in it that um, even a local jury that might have been disposed to blame the outsider for this horrible thing. After a week-long trial, this local jury was only out for an hour before they, less than an hour when they returned a not guilty verdict against uh, Ed Walker. And Huff pretty much uh, eviscerated him in cross-examination, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, twice during the cross-examination, Johnny Walter just got up and walked out of the courtroom. He left everybody dumbfounded. He just walked out of the way. Another point in the cross-examination, Johnny Walter threatened to strangle Joe Huff. And it was really, when I read the transcript of the cross-examination, it was just incredible. And then when the verdict came in, Johnny Walter just climbed out a window and walked out of, the, walked out of town. <laughs> Even Johnny Waldrop's own mother testified that he was a habitual liar. Correct. Right? Correct. I mean, the guy was just destroyed both by, by the cross-examination, but also by a bunch of other people, that, uh, including his mother, who uh, uh, Joe Huff called to the witness stand. And Ed Walker testified as well. How was he on the stand? Was he believable? By all accounts, he was very convincing. Um, At one point, he seemed a little too self-confident. And in a break in the proceedings, uh, Joe Huff told him to sort of dial it back a little bit, that he was doing well, but but not to push his luck. Even more so, uh, Joe Huff brought in really a parade of locals who had known Ed Walker and liked and respected him. And their testimony, according to the jurors that I interviewed later, it was the testimony of the local character witnesses on Ed Walker's behalf, at least as much as Walker's own testimony that convinced them, convinced the jurors that he was not responsible for the, for the murder. At one point, it, um, the judge said, I've heard enough. We don't need any more character witnesses. I, I, I get the point. What about physical evidence? Blood, semen, fingerprints. How did investigators handle that evidence? They mishandled it from the beginning. Um, they, didn't, um, they didn't save uh, the cord that uh, Nancy was bound with. There's a question as to whether they really took fingerprints from her car or not. I've never been able to find a record of fingerprints, whether they were taken by the FBI, taken by the State Bureau of Investigation, where they are. I could never get them to do anything. Later, what they had was lost by the State Bureau of Investigation. They said in a flood in a building that they were in Asheville. The only piece of evidence that remained was a semen sample that was preserved by the North Carolina uh, Criminal Lab. That was, this is 1970, so there was not much they could do with it in terms of, of using it as an investigative tool. That's changed over the years, and I was able to find out that that uh, sample was still existed in Chapel Hill. I went to speak with a with a medical examiner who had taken over for Dr. Hudson. And he said, "Here it is," and he showed it to me. It was in in a, in a paraffin tube, and so that figured later when I tried to get 
law enforcement people to uh, reopen the case. Yeah, so I do want to ask you about that because it was the 90s, right, when you started actively investigating the case. What prompted you to start looking at it on your own? Well, as it happens, um, I began my career in journalism writing about um, racial injustice in criminal cases and the application of the death penalty. So I spent most of the 1970s covering racial injustice cases in the southeastern United States, mostly in North Carolina, but not exclusively, and the disproportionate application of the death penalty to communities of color. And I was really learning by doing. I mean, I went to work for the Associated Press uh, out of school, and I got a journalism degree from Columbia University. And then I began my career as a freelance. And as it happened, it involved criminal justice. So I began to learn about autopsy reports, police reports, depositions, trial testimony. So all through the 70s, I was developing a skill set covering, uh, covering murder cases mostly. So by, by the end of the, of the 1970s, I, through my earlier work, I covered the case of serial killer Ted Bundy in Florida and Green Beret doctor Jeffrey McDonald in Fayetteville, North Carolina. At one point, I was commuting between the two, the two murder trials. But all the time that I was doing racial justice stuff, and then when I was doing the sensational cases, always sort of nagging in the back of my mind was the Nancy Morgan case. And over the years, I could have incidentally picked up some more information and put it in that original file I started back the week that she was killed. I made my first visit up to Madison County uh, uh, with my girlfriend, now wife, in the late 1970s where a friend of mine from Duke had started an inn up in Madison County in Hot Springs. And he had heard about the case. He moved up after it took place. But I said, his name is Elmer Hall. And I said, Elmer, would you keep an, an ear open for me? I, I think I'd really like to write a book about the Nancy Morgan case. And, and Elmer said, no, 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 no. You need to write a book about the Ponders. The Ponders are the story. So I said, well, we'll, we'll see what happens. So from basically from the late... 1970s, that file that I carried around got fatter and fatter. And at one point, I was hired to do research at the University of North Carolina for the Southern Oral History Project. And I would do prep notes for interviewers uh, who were going to interview famous or infamous North Carolina political figures. And I opened one file, totally by accident, of clips, and it said, Zeno Ponder. And there was a whole file full of material about his rise, which I didn't really know much about other than what Elmer told me. And I was fascinated by it. And so I photocopied everything in that file and put it in my file. So as the 70s became the 80s and the 80s became the 90s, I felt the pull of this case coming back to me. And I was in a much better position to pursue it because I had a lot more experience doing that. And while I was on the West Coast working for the LA Times, I was covering religion for a while, but then I got pulled off and got they saw what I had done in earlier in my career, and I was on back on the criminal beat in Orange County, California, covering mostly horrific murders. And so I was essentially back in the murder business, and a, a friend of mine who was our uh, newspaper librarian in Orange County, Sheila Kern, began helping me gather more information about the Morgan case and about Madison County. Now, this was really pre, most of this was pre-internet. So we had to do this by phone and by photocopy. But again, the file kept getting bigger and getting bigger. 
And at one point I decided that I really needed to write this book. And so I left the Los Angeles Times and took a job in uh, Orlando, Florida, working for the Orlando Sentinel. But before that, I combined my job search when I was leaving the LA Times with my first research trips up to Madison County in the mid-1990s. And I knew a, a good bit about Madison County by then, but at the time, I was still working for the LA Times. They had a feature called American Album, and it was kind of like a reporters on the road or reporters on vacation in colorful places. And so when I came back from my first 90s research trip, I wrote an American Album piece for the LA Times about Madison County, not mentioning the murder intentionally and not mentioning Bloody Madison. It was a very flattering piece. I interviewed both the Ponders and some other people. And so when I sent it back to friends in Madison County, people could see that I was not just another Northern reporter coming in, pretending to be friendly and sympathetic, and then screwing them when I went back to my TV studio or to my, uh, to my newspaper. So that laid the groundwork, I think, for the first of uh, really many trips. Then over the next 15 or 20 years, I would go up to Madison County, usually a week in the spring, a week in the fall. And uh, I used to joke that 50 years, that, 50 weeks a year, I was Homer Simpson in the suburbs of Central Florida with the two kids and a house in the suburbs and Birkenstocks and driving a Volvo. And then two weeks a year, I got to be Raymond Chandler. I uh, became a sleuth up in the wilds of Madison County, working my way through trying to solve uh, an, un- an unsolved murder. I-, I had to, I never told anybody but Elmer that I was coming. I, I wasn't over dramatizing, but Still, it's an unsolved murder, so you you take the normal precautions. And each week, I would come up with a list of names of people I wanted to speak with. I always I started with the oldest people first because, you know, people were dying, people were retreating behind the curtain of, you know, dementia, and there were also people who wouldn't talk to me, or people who would talk to me, who I came to understand were really sort of shaving their account, shading their account of what happened. So it was two weeks a year for probably 10 or 15 years of, of research. I didn't have a contract, so I, there was no deadline. I just kept researching until finally my, my younger brother, who's uh, now a state senator up in Maryland, he's, he was good at you know the tough talk. He said, you know, you've been at this long enough. It's time to write. So I did. We will return after a final break. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist?
Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And back once more. So through all of these interviews that you conducted, you began to suspect one person in particular. The name Richard Johnson kept coming up. And there had been gossip in the county for decades that Richard Johnson had been involved in Nancy's murder. Right. Um, I, I should backtrack and say that what I learned from Dr. Hudson, Paige Hudson, about the semen samples is that the semen came from more than one person. Uh, semen found in Nancy's body. And so the thought was it was not just one person. It was more than one person. And at some point, people began talking about a group of four or five people. And always in the names that they suggested, Richard Johnson was always number one. And his thug buddy was always number two. And so uh, Elmer had heard, Elmer Hall had been a poll watcher. And, you know, sometimes it takes a long time for people to come in and vote and people chit chat. And he had mentioned me and my book and the case. And someone said, oh yeah, that's Richard Johnson. He was in that group that was responsible. And so Elmer told me, and that was the first indication I had that that's the direction I should look into. So you decided at one point in your investigation to pay Richard Johnson a visit in prison. And you didn't want to give him warning of your arrival because you were worried about giving him time to think about how to avoid answering your questions. Yes, I, I did two things. I didn't give him much notice, and I didn't tell him why I wanted to speak with him. I didn't want to give him any notion of why I was, I was coming. He was serving 30 years for murdering his five-year-old daughter, poisoning her to death. And it wasn't likely 
he was ever going to get out. Nothing I could do or say or write was going to get him out. So I knew there was that. I had nothing to offer him. So I contacted him uh, through the warden of where he was in a road camp at that point, and uh, he agreed to see me. And so I went to see him, and uh, he wanted the prison chaplain to sit in in our first interview, which I was amenable to. I couldn't record at that point, so I, I right out of the box, I asked him about Nancy Morgan, and right out of the box, he said I was in the group that uh, kidnapped, raped, and murdered her, which I almost fell off my chair. I mean, that, that happens on TV and in the movies and in mysteries, but I don't think it happens very much in, in real life, particularly when you're not, you're not a police interrogator, when you're just some guy. Um, and so he told me his account in some areas, very specific and in some areas really sort of unspecific regarding his own role in what exactly he did. But it was a story that seemed to fit the physical evidence that I knew about and some of the things I know he didn't know about. And so as the interview wore down, I said, um, well, what would you say to, to Ed Walker? You know, you really kind of, you know, you let him out to dry there and you really, in many ways, ruined his life. I mean, he, he lost his marriage. His young daughter tried to kill herself. It's horrible. He said, yeah, he said, I really feel bad about that. And he said, if I could talk to him, I would apologize to him. So I said, well, you, would you like to talk to him? He said, yes, I would. And I just thought he was, it was more BS. Who knows? You know, with longtime inmates, you really don't know how you're being manipulated. So I said, okay, I'll ask and see if he wants to come up and talk to you. Never thinking that he would agree to it. Because he had put all this as much behind him as he could by that point. He was living, frankly, near where I was living in Central Florida, which is one of the reasons I took the job at the uh, Orlando Sentinel to be close to him in case he would ever agree to speak with me, which in the beginning he didn't, later he did. Um, and I said, well, you know, Richard has made this this offer that he he wants to talk to you and tell you what happened. Would, would you want to come up and talk to him? And he said, yes. And just, it, again, knocked me off my chair. I couldn't believe it. And I frankly didn't believe it until about a month later when he he pulled into the parking lot of this prison and got out of got out of the uh, got out of his car and we went to see Richard again, also with the chaplain present, and he repeated a story more or less the same. I was a little bit too eager, and he uh, Ed Walker kind of brushed me aside when I I was sort of getting too excited about what I was hearing. It's hard not to be, you know, if you're an investigative reporter. But he repeated, uh, Richard Johnson repeated that he was responsible. He was in the group of five people and he named five people. Uh, by that time, one or two of them were already dead. And later, uh, with my wife, I went to see his buddy, his best buddy, who was living just outside of Asheville at the time. And my wife and I, I called him. I said, I just... You know, I'm working on a book on Madison County. I wasn't specific that it was about a murder. You know, you don't want to, you know, tip your hand too much. He said, yeah, come on over. And we went over and and um, he was a character. He said, he pointed to a little dent in his fart. He said, yeah, that's the last time I got shot in the head. I figured, whoa, how often does that happen? <laughs> so, you know, you, you always, in an interview, you, you say, you ask the easy questions first, the non-threatening questions first. And the tougher questions you say for the end in case they shut you down. And so I did that and said, I said, you know, Henry, 
I'm, you know, Richard Johnson says that you were in a group that kidnapped, raped, and murdered Nancy Morgan. And he said, no. He said, I wasn't. He said, but he admitted that he was with Richard Johnson that night, that day, uh, that she disappeared. He said, yes, I was with him. Yes, I was drinking beer. Yes, I saw her car drive up to see Ed Walker. But no, I was not involved in a kidnap, rape, and murder. So that was half a loaf as far as I was concerned. At least he confirmed that part of the story. And uh, I think that really kind of was what convinced me at the end that, um, that I had the people responsible, at least some of the people responsible in my sights. I don't know if I've got this exactly right, but um, one of the things that Richard told you was that he had gone to E.Y. Ponder early on and admitted he had been involved in this. Uh, the other way around, E.Y. Ponder immediately suspected that it was Richard and Henry who were in the group. And even though E.Y. was out of office, he called, first he called Richard's father, who was his political ally, the uh, chief of police of Hot Springs, and said to give Richard a message saying, if you have that girl, you better turn her loose and turn her loose soon. Because so much heat was coming down on, on the county from state and federal law enforcement that it was just becoming uh, politically intolerable. Richard Johnson would not confess to any knowledge of her actual death. He said she died accidentally in another room and he was not witness to it. And he made sure to keep himself distant from her murder. And, and I think that did... That did fit the physical evidence. I think, as they say in the mountains, if, if they wanted to kill her, they would have stabbed her. And, and uh, the way she was tied, I think there was a lot of drinking among these five people, as well as the sexual assaults, and people came and went over several days. And the thought was that they had just tied her up to tie her up so she couldn't get away, and that as she struggled, she strangled. So it was not intentionally murdering her. It's just not the way people in the mountains would, would kill somebody. And they, and they kill people up there, at least then anyway. Yeah. I mean, you can, read, you can listen to any one of, uh, or listen to any one of a number of what's called murder ballads, you know, Pretty Polly, Silver Dagger. As Pete Seeger said, something about those songs, the girl always gets killed at the end. And, um, and so that happened, but... Uh, I don't think they, they tried to kill Nancy Morgan. I think, I mean, they put her in a position where she, you know, her struggling killed her, but I don't think it was, it, that was, I don't think it was a, a premeditated murder or intentional murder by any stretch of the imagination. So what have Madison County authorities done with your information? Well, the State Bureau of Investigation ostensibly reopened the case at my urging and they even sent two agents. They flew them down to Florida to meet with me and look over my files. But as soon as I started to speak with them, it, it became apparent to me that they really weren't interested in my scenario. Um, they did say that uh, Richard Johnson passed the polygraph test, but that's not admissible to court. But as they questioned me and they looked at my information, it was clear to me that they still believed that it was Ed Walker. And my feeling was that because the SBI had bungled 
the investigation at the time, they were basically covering up for their former colleagues. And I found that distressing. And um, then later there was another, uh, a new sheriff in Madison County who seemed interested and was starting to pursue the case. And then he lost interest in it. And, um, and so uh, I, I felt kind of uh, frustrated. In the new book, there's a new chapter, an update, in which I suggest the emergence of another forensic technique might help definitively solve what happened. I took that notion to the current State Bureau investigation and got brushed off. And I think, I hope that when the book comes out, that this new forensic technique in which law enforcement all over the country are solving very cold cases will be utilized in this case if the remaining physical evidence is still available. And that's as specific as I can be. On what date does the new edition of your book come out? April 5. April 5th, okay. That, that's great for my listeners to know. Uh, what was Nancy's family's reaction when you shared this information, this Richard Johnson confession? By the time I got this information, Nancy's father had died of stomach cancer. And I made a conscious decision that I would reach out to her two brothers, who were basically contemporaries of mine age-wise, but I would not trouble her mother. I just I felt I couldn't do that unless I had something that I could bring to her in terms of closure. And by the time I was ready to do that, she had had, had Alzheimer's. And so I couldn't tell her this even if I wanted to. Nancy has had two brothers. Um, the younger brother, George, was more receptive than the older brother, who basically wanted to put it behind him. And George was extremely helpful to me. He gave me the names of some people to contact. Um, we had long interviews. I went to see him in Baton Rouge, where he lives. He took me to Nancy's grave. He was extremely helpful, and he has remained helpful. And he still wants to see justice done. And when the book comes out, he's committed to a press conference in Raleigh, the state capital, to try to pressure state law enforcement to pursue this new forensic tool that I talk about. Oh, how, how exciting. Yeah. Uh, so as I mentioned in the introduction, you have another true crime book coming out soon. Would you tell us a bit about Drifting into the Darkness? What's it all about? It's about a lot of people's worst nightmare. It's about a gifted but troubled young man who drifted into darkness of mental illness and other things and uh, ended up murdering both of his parents with an ax handle. Horrific story. Um, I would say it's not my kind of murder, generally speaking, but my wife's sister is an attorney and a social worker and she's a specialist in what's known as death penalty mitigation. And she's hired in a case mandated by the federal courts that if you have a defendant who you think is likely to face the death penalty at the end of the trial, you need to hire a mitigation specialist whose job it is not to argue the innocence of the person, 
but to argue why this person should not be killed and executed. And she's very good at that. And uh, like the cases that I covered, most of the murder cases she dealt with involved people who were, you know, poor or of color or somehow, you know, created disadvantaged. But at one point, uh, I guess it would be in, uh, yes, 2009, I think, she mentioned to me, we were the, she and my wife and her husband were together. She was at a death penalty conference, actually, it was in Santa Fe. And she said, I have a case I think you might be interested in. It's, it's, it's really fascinating to me. And it's about this young guy. And she told me this story in the car driving to the airport. I said, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm kind of interested in that. And then no more was said of it. I did her a memo and no more was said of it. And then uh, Met Her on the Mountain came out in 2013. She said, now's the time. I, yeah, I've seen that you've done this book. I want you to write a book about this case. Because I believe that this, this young man who drifted into darkness, who by that time had was in prison for the killings and had committed suicide, unfortunately, and my sister-in-law was so upset, she said, I think a grave injustice was done. The woman who was really responsible for orchestrating these killings got away scot-free. She was a person who pretended to be a, a Native American shaman. And this young man fell under her spell. And she milked this young man's family for more than a million dollars. And when they cut off funding, suspecting that she was a gold digger or a grifter, um, Six weeks later, he got on a bus in Boulder, Colorado, and took the bus to his home in Montgomery, Alabama, laid in wait on Thanksgiving weekend. And when his parents came back, he brutally beat them to death. And um, he, then he stole his father's uh, Jaguar and drove to Oklahoma. And then he got on another bus and got back to Boulder. And eventually he was uh, arrested in, in a mental facility. It's a, this is a young man who'd been treated by at least four psychiatrists had been involuntarily uh, committed for three-day evaluation twice in his life, but the prosecutor would not accept uh, an offer of uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was facing the death penalty. And my sister-in-law and two very gifted attorneys from uh, Montgomery saved this young man from death row. He got life without parole in what was supposed to be a secure psychiatric facility, but several years later, he saved up his Tylenol and had an overdose and died of liver failure. And so my sister-in-law remained infuriated that this other woman had escaped. And she said, you have to, you know, you have to write a book about what, what really happened in this murder. And so she sent me, I would say 15 file boxes of priceless material for an author. She sent me emails. She sent me letters. She sent me, um, journal entries of both the young man and one of his victims, correspondence, interviews that they had conducted for the, uh, for the defense. She sent me his psychiatric records, which in this, this era of HIPAA, you really can't get. It's almost impossible to get psychiatric or medical records if people don't agree to it. But she had gotten them for the death penalty defense. And when I put them on the floor, it was like, the stack was a foot and a half high of psychiatric records and just priceless material. It took me six months to go through what she gave me. Once I'd gone through it and was convinced about the direction of the investigation, then I began doing my own interviews in four or five states. And, and so that led to the book, Drifting into Darkness. And when does that book come out? April 5th, same day. 
and it's available for pre-order, right? Yes. And you have a website. I do. It's very simple. Well, simple to me anyway. www.markpinsky, one word, M-A-R-K-P-I-N-S-K-Y.com. And that will tell you all you need to know about me, certainly more than enough about me, but also uh, whatever you would want to know about both of the books. And there's, in about a week, there'll be an excerpt from each book also up on the website. I'm also on on Facebook, and I think I'm going to, I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Uh, no thanks to me. I, I hired a digital marketing firm to help me get that stuff up on the platforms that I still don't understand. <laughs> you, you know, I've been thinking about doing something with TikTok too. Um, I've got a, an account set up there, but I haven't put any videos out. Is that working well for you? I have no idea. And I have <laughs> no idea. I just didn't want to leave any money on the table. I mean, <laughs> this, is my, this is my seventh nonfiction book. And what I've learned in promoting them in various eras over 20 years is that um, what, you, what I can do, what an author can do is make people aware of the book. I can't make them buy it. And if they buy it or if I give it to them, I can't make them read it. And if they read it, I can't make them like it. So I'm settling for making them aware of the book. And then the books will stand or fall on their, of their own weight. Absolutely. That's a great way to look at it. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. You know, you're, you're really, you know, it's, it's funny. I thought I have a tougher time interesting people in the old book than in the new book because people said, well, it's a second bite of the apple, blah, blah, blah. But I've been pleasantly surprised that the, the durability of the story continues to engage people and, and you're one of the people who it has engaged. Again, I have been speaking to Mark Pinsky, author of Met Her on the Mountain, The Murder of Nancy Morgan. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.